So what I want to do for the next few minutes is to take what Josh did yesterday, which was like a filet mignon. I mean, there was just so much in what Josh did with atonement and the meaning of the cross. Um, and the whole time that he was talking, I was thinking about, um, I don't remember who first introduced me to this idea, but when you try to understand the meaning of the cross in church history, right, there's a lot of different interpretations. And Josh did a great job of succinctly describing that. And the two books that he mentioned are fantastic. Um, but I was thinking of the analogy that I heard one time, that if you hold a diamond up to the light, up to a pure light source, um, this is the only thing I remember from ninth grade science class. I think it's called refraction. Yeah. I was always better in English and history. Math and science were a struggle for me. But if you hold the, the, the diamond up to the light source and you turn it, it refracts different colors. But you haven't changed the source. So sometimes when people talk about, well, how can you talk about these different views of the cross? That's what we're talking about. It's the same cross, the same Jesus but there's multiple layers. If that makes you uncomfortable, well, you have four Gospels, right? And Matthew is not the same as Mark, is not the same as Luke, is not the same as John. Now, they're way more similar than they are different, but they're not the same. Jesus is depicted in unique and different ways. So yesterday, Josh talked a lot about how do we understand the love of God for the world as expressed in Jesus, specifically the crucifixion, and so what I want to do today, because this is just kind of where I'm at in my own life, is I want to think about what does that, how, how do we make that intensely personal without being individualistic? Right? Because uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Protestant Christianity in our country is incredibly, incredibly selfish and individualistic. What's, what's in this for me? What are my rights? What's, what's best? And I just, I don't see that in the witness of the early church. But the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus for the early church was intensely personal. Think about Paul, right? He had such an intense personal encounter with Jesus that it shaped his entire life. And so he wanted everybody, corporately, communally, to have this intense encounter with the risen Christ. So that's what I want to do is Josh yesterday gave us kind of the, the, the theology. But what I want to do is, if it's true, what John says in John 3.16, which we'll see again when the NFL season ramps up, that God so loved the world, right? You and I are part of Jesus' definition of the world in that context. When, when John says... When John describes Jesus and Jesus says, for God, that whole uh, sequence of events, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who should ever believe in him would have life and life everlasting or life eternal, he was including you and me in that. That wasn't just an evangelistic notion of go get other people to believe this. So my premise is that it has to start with you intensely in your own heart believing that the love of God is not just for all these people around you, but it's also for you. And there is a direct relationship between our ability to recognize the love of God for us and our ability to share that with other people. 
In fact, if I were going to push it even further, and I think I have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John on my side, but if I were going to push it further, I would say it like this. You cannot love God and love other people well unless you love yourself well. And I already know how some of you will hear that. Well, this, are, is this an Oprah session? <laughs> no, what it is is saying that the suffering of Jesus, that the love of God expressed in Jesus through compassion and mercy and friendship and forgiveness and reconciliation and justice and beauty, all those things that we care about, it starts in our own hearts. And we can't siphon off other people believing that for themselves. We have to first believe it in our own life. For those of you who got to hear Randy Harris the other night, that's why it was a brilliant moment when he said, yeah, it's really easy for me to be cynical about the church, but I'd better start with myself first. And if I just make observations about kind of crazy conservative Christianity right now and far, far progressive politics, uh, you know it's the same thing, right? It's the same coin, just two different sides. One is rooted in fear. The other root is in anger. It's the same thing. It's not the love of God. Um, and if, if COVID kind of taught me anything about working with a large group of people in this messy thing we call church, it's that... Um, both extremes in our culture are equally unhealthy. And both are trying to manipulate people to get what they want. It's about power, not about love on both sides. And so when I stand in the middle of this, like in my church context, which is very diverse politically and socially, um, you know, my friends on the left and my friends on the right say, well, if you're going to critique both of us, that puts you in the middle. And you know what that's called? Roadkill. <laughs> okay. Back to crucifixion, atonement, theology, right? So that's the premise of what I want to do for the next 25 minutes, is that um, to the degree with which we believe the love of God is for us, that is the measure of which we are able to love others and then also to love God in our lives. And the way that I kind of get there through the life of Jesus is first understanding the Jesus Creed. So this will be a review for some of you. For some of you, this may be a different way to think about it. But Jesus did not think all parts of the Bible were created equal. Right? He takes Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, which is the bedrock text of Torah for Jews even today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Tell your children about it attach it to your wrist, put it on your forehead, put it above your door. They still do this in Israel today, right? Everywhere you go in Israel, they have this attached um, to important spaces. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He got that from Leviticus 19, which Randy also referenced. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And if you, if you read Leviticus 19, you do all these very detailed things, and then you get to the end, and it's... Not just love your neighbor as yourself, right? But it's love the stranger, the alien, the foreigner. So what Jesus does is he takes a very familiar Jewish idea, 
but then he attaches another very old text that most people had skipped over. And he said, when you hold these two together, that's when you're actually embodying the best of the kingdom of God. Because not all texts are created equal. It's not all the same. And then he reinforces this. He doubles down on this in the Gospel of John in chapter 13 when he says, a new commandment I give you. We can spend the rest of our lives just on this one saying from Jesus. He says, now I'm asking you not just to love people as much as you love yourself, because most of us take care of ourselves. Now I want you to love others as I have loved you. You're not a good enough standard. I'm not a good enough standard. So the best definition of love that I've come across, and maybe you have a better one, but the best definition of love that I've come across comes from a New Testament writer named Scott McKnight. And this is what he says about love. In fact, I've heard him give this description on this very campus. He says, love is a rugged commitment to be with someone to be for someone with Christ as the standard for as long as it takes. Love is a rugged commitment to be with someone, to be for someone with Christ as the standard for as long as it takes. And that should be the first thing that we think about when we think about the cross of Jesus. Not Jesus trying to satisfy an upset father, blocking the father from angry vindiction against all these humans, but the love of God so overflowing in Jesus that everyone else who was in power, threatened by that, couldn't stand that way of being, and so they tried to eradicate him, but Jesus not being murdered, right? Just giving himself over, saying, I give myself away, I give my body away because I love these people, even the enemies even the soldiers spitting on me. So that is a working definition of love that can seep its way into every relationship that you have. Even the strained family systems issues that all of us have to navigate, right? Even the annoying neighbor next to you who just happens to be the weirdest person on planet Earth, right? Have you all had this neighbor? Okay, if you haven't, that means you are that neighbor. <laughs> right? And so this definition of love, it's not about agreeing. It's not even about how you feel. It's about a daily decision to be with someone, to be for someone, with Jesus as the standard for as long as it takes. So when you break that down, the be with and be for, it's presence and advocacy. Right, so, so when someone brings you a deep burden, a secret, something that they're carrying, a deep wound, some kind of profound grief that, by the way, every person in this room carries in, inside of them. When someone brings that to you and you decide to love them, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to be present with you and I'm going to protect you from other people for as long as it takes because that's what love demands. And if you're not the kind of person in which people are sharing that with you, it simply means they don't feel safe. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. <laughs> there might be other reasons you're a bad person. It's not that. 
but it means they don't trust you. They don't feel safe. And what Jesus does over and over again, it's so compelling in the Gospels. It isn't that Jesus wanted to be around all these broken people. That's not what ultimately makes him so interesting. What makes Jesus so interesting is that all these broken, sinful people gravitated towards him. They wanted to be around him. Why? They trusted him. Love is a rugged commitment to be with, presence, and to be for, to advocate. And that is kind of a pure uh, working definition of how we can put the cross, as Josh described, yes, Josh Ross described yesterday, into kind of our everyday spirituality. And I don't know about you, but coming out of COVID, I'm just interested in things that work. I've, I've lived so much of my life kind of in the abstract of the ideas that I actually like things that work. And I, I think that definition of love works. Um, so let me, let, me, um, let me describe some people to you who are important in my life and tell you about their journeys as a way of embodying everything that I'm talking about. The first person is, uh, I have her permission to tell her story but she is now 35 years old. She lives in Arizona. Her name is Liz. And I first met Liz when I was 23 years old. She was probably high, like early high school. She battled a, an addiction the entire time I knew her. I won't get into all of her family history, but let me just say there is a really good reason why she battled addiction. Really good reason. And... Her uh, boyfriend, who's also the father of her only son at that time, he also battled an addiction. Uh, and he overdosed. I'll never forget this. Uh, he was battling a heroin addiction. And so he was on the supplement that acts as heroin. It's called methadone. And he was trying to get off of it. Um, and he was out of methadone, so he borrowed someone else's, which is a felony in most states. And another young adult in our church shared his methadone, but it had something else in it. It's a very complicated story. Nick took that, died. I wake up Sunday morning. This is when you, we still had Nokia cell phones. You guys remember those? <laughs> you had to go to the store to like pay your bill. Couldn't do it online yet, all that. Um, I woke up that Monday morning, turned my Nokia cell phone on. I had 37 text messages because they had all stayed the night in Liz's apartment, this, this friend circle, and they found Nick dead in the back bedroom. They, did, they didn't know. They were afraid to call the police, so they called me. And I've been around a lot of dead bodies before, but nothing quite like that. So immediately, our kind of team of people who do pastoral care in our church. This was in Michigan. Um, we jumped into action because we knew Liz was one night of being alone by herself of probably d going the same path, but, but doing it on purpose. Nick didn't kill himself on purpose. So a friend of mine who was extremely wealthy and had his own children that he was raising who were struggling with addiction had a real soft spot for Liz. So he came to me and he said, do you know how much recovery costs in America? I had no idea. At that time, 
uh, it was somewhere between the, the center that he wanted to send Liz to was somewhere between five and seven thousand dollars a month. And when you're 23, 24, like I was, that may as well have been a million dollars, right? And he said, I'm willing to pay for Liz as long as she doesn't have the option to leave the treatment center. Well, I said, well, that's not treatment center, that's prison. <laughs> you can't, like, except in a very rare circumstance, can you keep someone in a treatment center against their will? So I had to make a decision that I still think about to this day because it's one of those in ethics classes. It's like, what's the right thing to do here? But I went to Liz and I said, here's how we're feeling. We feel like you will be dead in the next 30 days because Nick died. You don't have any tools to cope and you're going to numb, medicate with your addiction. She said, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I said, and it will probably escalate to such a degree that you will die. Okay, I'm willing to do the work. Okay, we have this set up for you in Arizona. So-and-so is going to pay for it. And we're going to check in with you as often as they will let you. But you need real help, like real help. Not church help, but like real help. She said, okay, I'll do it under one condition. After 30 days, if I don't think it's working, I get to come home. And I said, absolutely, and I was completely lying to her. Now, technically, you can't keep her there, but it's so far out in the desert in Arizona <laughs> that they have to be willing. I don't know how many miles it is to the next town, but it was, like, ridiculous how, how isolated it is. On the 30th day, I'm volunteering in downtown Detroit in a homeless shelter that our church works in. She's blowing up my phone. You know what day it is. I cannot repeat the words that she used. She was desperate because she wanted to get back to her life of addiction, right? You beep, beep, beep. You told me you beep, you know. And in that moment, I knew I did the right thing by lying to her. And to this day, there is not a bigger fan of my lie than her. It took a while for her to get there. But I asked her recently, and by the way, I don't want to pre present this as Disney. Uh, she's not a person that you would like put in front of your church as like the Saul conversion story. She's still messy. <laughs> and I, lo I love it. I love it. But I asked her recently, I said, what was the moment, because she ended up staying in that facility for two years. She became a, the intake person, as happens often in those settings. And I said to her, I said, what was the moment? What was the soul moment, the spiritual moment that changed things for you? And she said, I had listened to you talk on and on and on about the love of God. And I thought the love of God was for everybody but me. And the moment that I knew my recovery had a chance to work was the moment I decided that God's love had to start in me. That's the magic of AA, by the way. That's the magic of the 12 steps. Do you really believe this is for you and not just for everybody else? So I asked her questions like, how do you talk to yourself 
think about this in your own life. How do you talk to yourself? Like when no one else is around. Or you have the interior monologue with yourself. We all do this, right? Sometimes it's out loud and someone else catches us and they're like, is there a ghost? Who are you talking to right now? You're driving, you're in the shower, you're sitting on the back patio. You, you have these conversations with yourself. Pay attention to how you talk to yourself. Pay attention to how you talk to yourself to other people. I'm such an idiot. I can't do that. Well, you know, you know, you know what I, you know how I mess up, right? And we play these tapes, and we say them enough, and we start to believe them. Pay attention to how we respond when other people affirm us. Hey, that was really good. Ah, oh, no, it wasn't. Well, they think it was really good, so by you saying that, you actually just insulted their intelligence or their judgment, right? Pay attention to how you respond when other people critique you or challenge you. Because what I'm saying is all of that in your soul reveals your ability to love yourself well. And this is not ego. This is not faults like gratification. We're not not talking about that. Pay attention to how we allow other people to talk to us. Someone who loves themselves well will not let other people speak to them in a way that destroys life and destroys joy. That is a really strong boundary in someone who loves themselves well. Um, I, over the last two years, another person in my life um, who's a survivor, and her parents are both now in a much better place, but she has essentially experienced childhood um, with her parents always home, but never present because of their own drug addiction. So they were always home, in the home, but four or five nights a week, they were not present with her. And so she grew up in the bonus room watching cartoons almost every afternoon and evening after school because her parents who were jointly into their drug addiction together. And so this, this just painful retelling. She's not a believer, by the way, but she agreed to come and, and do some work with me and a counselor because her mom is trying to get her life together. And I had her go through those exercises. How do you talk to yourself? How do you let other people talk to you? How do you talk to yourself when no one is around? What, how do you talk to yourself when someone compliments you? How, do you? how do you respond when someone critiques you? All of those kind of deep things that bring out like who we really are, not who we're pretending to be. And she, at the, the first time we had the conversation, I think she was 22, 21 maybe, and you could just see the walls come down and the tears come out because she had internalized the shame of her external realities and internalized that to such a degree that she believed she was all alone in the world and that, that literally no one cared about her. That's an intense loneliness that is not sustainable in anyone's life. So part of what we've been trying to, to do in this particular situation, and the therapist has taken the lead and she's, she's been phenomenal with it, is to 
introduce then spiritual practices under the guise of here's how you can learn to love yourself well. So just think about this with me in your own life. Do you regularly practice confession? I'm going to sound very Catholic. (laughs) And I'm taking from the best of the Catholic tradition as I understand it with confession. Here's what I mean by confession. Do you have someone in your life that you can say what you need to say and they're still going to show up the next day? And this may sound overdramatic. I do not think that you can be a healthy person if you don't have at least one person who fits that description in your life. I think you can be moderately healthy. I don't think you can be flourishing. And the reason is I don't think that we were designed to keep all of our questions and doubts and hurts and pains. and I don't think we were designed to keep them to ourselves. So when we do, we're actually fighting our very biology and psychology. So it's not just spiritual. I'm saying it's the whole person. And one of the things that I lament, particularly for men as they get older, and I'm not saying about this about any of the men in the room, but if it applies, feel free. But it is, it is shocking to me how few friends men have as they get older. Shocking to me. Not in judgment. This is not about, but sadness, right? And so if, if we don't have spaces in our lives, people that we trust to be vulnerable, to say, hey, when President Biden said, I think he is full of, or when President Trump said, I think he is complete. That's just the beginning level. But if we also don't have spaces in our lives to say, man, I just had a memory of this thing that happened when I was 10. And I don't know how to make sense of it. Did, is there, did you, do you relate to anything? like? Did you ever feel threatened when you were a child? Like, If we don't have spaces to legitimately bear parts of our essence, our soul, we cannot be the full, functioning, flourishing person that God dreams for us to be. It's not possible. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Jesus' own brother, right? James says, confess your sins to one another. Now, I work a lot with college students at Lipscomb University. This doesn't mean confess your sins to everybody. (laughs) Like, dial it back a little bit. Because if you give people parts of yourself, they can really hurt you with that information. So you've got to choose wisely and you've got to choose carefully with discernment about who you allow into that space of of, uh, confession. Another discipline that I think is very powerful under the category of how do we love ourselves well is the simple daily practice of gratitude. And I, there are, it is amazing what gratitude does for the human spirit. So a lot of us carry resentment around, right? It's pretty normal. Resentment is like the, the silent cancer that kills most people spiritually. Resentment towards God. You didn't answer this prayer. You let this happen to me. Why, why, did, why did you heal that person? 
but my dad died of cancer, or why is that person now in that situation and you know what they did, and now they're in a leadership position and you haven't done it. We carry around these resentments, right? And people carry around those resentments towards us, and sometimes we're not even aware of that. I have experienced that the simplest way to aggressively rid yourself of resentment is to be mindful every day of the miracle of your own existence, which is another way to say gratitude. I slept in a great bed last night. I ate tacos for dinner last night. I got to watch NBA basketball with some of my closest friends. I have three healthy sons right now who are relatively normal human beings. <laughs> like, it, that's, that's what I'm saying is we, we have to live with this disposition of God. If you never give me anything else, everything you've already given me is enough. You, you cannot mess with the person who operates with that mentality. Right? Some of us, we like to drag people down. We like to pull people into our drama. We like to stir things. If you have someone in your life who lives with that disposition, God, if you never give me anything else, everything I have is enough, you have no power over that person. You can't control that person. So there is this, this um, give us this day our daily bread, this simple acknowledgement that we rely on the gift and the graces of God to make every day count. And... Uh, and adopting that kind of mentality of, I can't believe I'm alive right now on planet Earth in this beautiful place with beautiful people who mostly intend to do good, even when they mess up. That is a radically different orientation to the world than entitlement that exists almost everywhere that I go now. Um, another spiritual discipline that I think is integral to loving yourself well is listening to your body. And for most of us, that means we have to get off of our screens and into creation. And I don't care. It, I don't care if it's pickup basketball. I don't care if it's swimming. That's the details aren't important, but. For too long in the West, we have kind of trended towards this idea that we are brains on a stick, right? That's kind of enlightenment in a phrase. And where we are right now culturally is recognizing the atrophy of the human soul because we spend hours on social media, right? Facebook is the junk drawer that everyone has in their house. You know that drawer you have where you put all the things you don't know where to put? That's Facebook. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you don't have that. And uh, I even saw this in the United Kingdom a few years ago. The, the governing body of psychology in the United Kingdom went back to British Parliament and said, we're going to give you back some of the national funding that you provided for us for uh, medicinal research. And we want you... They couldn't make them, but they requested that the British Parliament would invest that money into getting the people of the United Kingdom exercising. Because their conclusion was therapy matters, medicine matters, it all matters, but the most important thing for helping people to get back to a healthy, flourishing life is to get back into our own bodies. 
You guys, you need to get in the ocean before you get back on the airplane or back into your car. It is so cold. I did it yesterday. I mean, it is colder than you think. But you need to get back into your bodies. You're not a brain on a stick. You're a body with a soul. I need to see Bible on that. Okay. I love when people say that because now you're on my turf. (laughs) Jesus walked everywhere. Jesus did his best work at tables, eating food with people he wasn't supposed to eat with. Right? If you've ever been to Israel, walking that terrain is formidable. And then you sit down and you're, you're, you're inviting the graces and the gifts of God through food. Mediterranean food is incredible into your body. Jesus was fully living into his body in those three years. As far as we know, he was a wood or a, a stonemason, which meant in those adult years, probably traveling to Sepphoris, a nearby major Roman city, he's working with his body all day. He's exhausted. He's not behind a computer screen all day. I tease our ministry staff all the time. If Jesus walked through offices, he would be like, what is this place? Well, this is a church. I see a lot of Apple computers. <laughs> um, if you think about Paul's theology, which is based on Jesus' teaching in John, that God's presence no longer can be relegated to the temple on Mount Moriah, but now the presence of God is in us. Paul says it strongly. He says, do you not know that your body is a... Now, he wasn't saying you can't... He wasn't, he wasn't talking about wine, right? Or watching rated R movies, the way I heard those texts interpreted growing up. He was talking about taking the one body that you have on this side and stewarding and loving and honoring that body because it's a gift from God. So part of what it means to love ourselves well is to love ourselves well enough to recognize when we're not living in our bodies in a way that honors the God who gave us those bodies. And... um, That includes sleeping well. It's so interesting that when Paul talks about death, he compares it to sleep. Right? Because for Paul, waking up was a tiny microcosm of resurrection. You ever thought about that? You know those nights, I haven't had one this week, but you know those nights when you sleep so well, the screen goes blank and the next thing you know, it's morning? That's how Paul talks about death and resurrection. It's so interesting to me that most of us are wired, if not all of us, wired to, we have to have that rhythm of death, sleep, in order to be renewed. And the longer that we go kind of living on the margins or cutting corners on that, all the research says you cannot live a long, flourishing life if you don't sleep well. Because woven into our creatureliness is the need for this kind of rhythm in our body to sleep well and then to be raised from the dead. Which is why we need coffee, right? (laughs) But there is a rhythm that Judaism and Christianity gives us that we pay attention um, and we care about these things. So, 
Um, in, in different contexts, when I have talked about loving ourselves well, people ask, well, how do you know the difference between loving yourself well and just being self-absorbed? It's a really good question. What's the difference between loving yourself well and being a, a functional narcissist? And here's what I think the difference is. And I might be wrong, but this is the best that I've got today. And I've got this from a writer named Kristen Neff, N-E-F-F. -F. She says the difference is understanding that pity is not the same thing as compassion. Right? Pity is sympathy. I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry you got a parking ticket. That's sympathy. And that's not bad, but it's not complete. She says the difference between pity and compassion, by the way, compassion literally means to co-suffer, to enter into, co-passion, compassion. She says compassion is empathy. Compassion says, and Brene Brown talks a lot about this too, by the way, Compassion is, you know, two years ago when you didn't see me at church a lot, it's because I was depressed. And I still experience sadness and melancholy, but it's not full-blown depression anymore to someone who's just told you what they're going through. Sympathy is, I'm, I'm sorry you're feeling that. I hate that for you. I've been in the pit, and here's what you can expect, and I'll stay with you even when you don't want me to. So having compassion for yourself is not the same thing as pitying yourself. That's one way to think about, how do I know if this is healthy? Because again, my premise is, the people who love other people well like truly love other people well. They're able to do it because they are committed to loving themselves well also. And I didn't learn that in a book. I learned that from watching people and experiencing life with different people. And when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he is playing off of a long Jewish assumption that you are worthy of loving yourself also. That's where he starts as the baseline. So it's implied, right? It's implicit. It's not explicit. In the Gospel of John, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, that you might have everlasting life. That you would not perish. But that you would have this thing called the abundant life that he talks about. It starts with choosing to believe that you are worthy of the same love that you want other people to experience. Why would you want that for others but not for yourself? And then when it happens, when it takes root, you can withstand criticism, you can withstand loneliness, you can withstand rejection, you can withstand betrayal, you can withstand the great spiritual force in the church, gossip, you can withstand all of these other things that happen in all these family systems and relationship networks because you've done the hard work of planting these seeds that then have grown up to produce kingdom fruit. 
And then you are able to invite others into that. And there is nothing better in life than when you've done the hard work and then you get to invite other people into that same journey. Because if you're doing the hard work, you're not doing it by yourself. You're learning it from other people and then you get to bring other people into that. And that's what it means to really be a servant leader. That's what it means to be a minister. That, that's what it means to have spiritual influence in people's lives. You're simply inviting them into spaces you've already gone. But if you haven't gone there, you don't have the right to invite people into those spaces. Because you don't have anything to offer. So, Paul says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And I think part of that entails embracing what he also says in 2 Corinthians 5, which is we no longer view each other. We no, we no longer see other humans from a human point of view. Resentment, anger, judgment. But now we view humans, including ourselves, from this spiritual heavenly perspective, worthy of the love of God. So my prayer for you this week in all the different presentations that you're listening to, all the different teachings, is that you walk away believing that you are worth fighting for. And the implications for all the people who are close to your life and close to you are enormous. Because people will feel that love. They'll feel that safeness. They'll feel that joy. They'll feel that compassion. And uh, they'll want that for their life. I think that's what Paul meant when he said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of that. So we pray, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, thank you for putting us in this beautiful place for naming us, for creating us in your image. And God, it is our heart's desire to not waste this life. So whether we are storytellers, whether we are engineers, whether we are artists, whether we are nurses, whatever vocations are represented in this room, God, help us to live out of a place of abundant life, abundant joy, and fierce love for other people. Thank you for your son who best embodies what it means to live on planet Earth and to be fully human and fully alive to who you are. We pray this the way Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Have a great rest of the day. Go in peace.